are live now, Greg. I'm going to share the link in a few places if it, my phone, if I can get it to let me do that, and then we'll get started in about four or five minutes. Great. All right. All good. I can tell that you were in work in a building today, and I was not in work in a building today. <laughs> well, you've got a whole semester you don't have to come I in. I've got a whole a building semester today. I don't have to come in. <laughs> I am excited about it, i got to be honest. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> I've actually been riding, too, which just having time to ride is like a shocker. Yeah. And it, I, I, you do. I mean, there are some people who can kind of write in between the other stuff they do, but I, I've always needed a, a you know, a decent amount of, of time to kind of block off just to write. And it's hard to do when you're teaching and doing other stuff. Yeah, yeah. I've been able to just get by with things, but that's about it. Me, I, I essentially do all of mine in the, um, in the summer and winter. I don't know when I would have time otherwise. Exactly. I would, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the best. You got to be able to use your summer and your break to write. I got it on my timeline. Let's see if there's anywhere else I can put it. That would be useful. Sharing an event. There we go. I'll share it in the little event that we had too. And put it. You got a special event just for you. Yay. You should feel, you know, super special. I, I feel very special. <laughs> special event. Thank you. Okay, we have a few people here. Hi, Marcus. All right, a few people are starting to come in, but I'm going to try sharing in a couple more places, and then we'll get going. All righty. Ah, here we go. Share. Nothing like good, awkward silence. Yeah, there we go. That's the way to start things off. Which is almost impossible when you and I are in the same room at the same time. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and do some just beginning uh, things that I start class with. Like, I treat it great. I don't know if you've seen any of them, but just like as 
I was holding virtual class, I've been running it through a Google Classroom, have the Facebook Live where people can jump on and ask questions. So this is week three. Um, our guest tonight is Greg Galls. Greg was kind enough not only to be, I guess, brave maybe, brave enough to be one of the early podcast guests. And we had so much fun that I asked Greg to come and be a part of the live classroom. He was going to be uh, joined by John Schuschler, but unfortunately John had some obligations for tonight. So hopefully we'll get to him in another time. So we're going to shift the conversation a little bit away from deceit in particular, since that was um, John's specialty. You, you, I don't know how it feels, um, Greg. You were the your podcast was the uh, was the very next highly voted for the class. So it's like you're the first sub, I guess. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, so this is week three. I don't think it's interesting. This president's lying. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, it was a really fun to talk with John about that too. It was like how to we were careful not to use the word lying every time, and when it was deception, and when it was lie, and what's the difference, and and sometimes it gets uh, it was I think sometimes in the past it was really hard to determine between maybe just misinformation and lies, and sometimes maybe it's a little bit more blatant. Um, but um, so this is week three. Um, next week uh, we're actually working with more people from the Bush School. Greg, uh, Ann, and Rob are going to do cities and sustainable sustainability with me next week, so that should be fun. Right, right. Um, and let's see, it's, there's two weeks left. Next week, I think we'll go back to 7 p.m. Eastern time. So uh, we backed up one hour late. Uh, the Bush School was having an event that Greg needed to attend, so um, he was kind of to stay even later after attending a late event at work with us tonight. So thanks for that, Greg. Sure. Um, so I thought... Well, the direction we might take it in tonight rather than deceit is to give people a little primer on international relations. I know one thing that I told you when I came to the Bush School is I knew very little to nothing about international affairs when I joined the Bush School. And it was really fun for me to get to hear you talk and other people talk and Ryan Crocker it was the dean at the time and just learn about international affairs and international relations. And um, we talked a little bit in the first week or two of this, and then in the podcast, I've made several references to how the world, uh, to steal a term that Vice has used recently in a special, the world feels a little in disarray from not just in the U.S., but in sort of a shifting of global powers, um, and there seems to be a lot of uncertainty in how some of the global powers are interacting and what's their current status and how's their relative power shifting so how do, when we think about the lay of land of nation states, I suppose, how do we think they should interact? What are the kind of the main theories or basic ways of thinking about how nation states interact that, that your field has kind of come up with? So, yeah, I think that uh, what we have to do is, is remember that all of these theories are really abstractions from reality. And reality is a lot messier. So... None of these uh, international relations theories are going to give you an exact explanation for a specific case because reality is a lot messier. But these theories give us kind of kind of frameworks for organizing our thoughts about this stuff. So probably the most popular and the most powerful the international relations theory, at least in the in, in the way American academics have approached international relations, which is really a, a very new field. It's a post World War II field. Okay. Uh, before World War II, if you studied international relations 
in the United States. He basically studied international law. Okay. And, 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 and that's an interesting framework because it, it basically says, right, well, uh, interactions among countries is governed by law. And what you need to do is understand these laws, and then you will understand how states interact with one another. Well, World War One and World War Two made it more difficult to to argue that law based and rule based uh, interactions were what governed. Because there's a clear breakdown. There's a clear yeah, breakdown. Yeah. Because there, it's it's power, right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's struggles for power, fights. You know, people killing large, you know, states killing large numbers of, of the citizens of other states and uh, even of their own states in the quest for power. So, in the post World War II period. Uh, particularly as the United States comes out of World War II and then is confronted by uh, this new superpower uh, across the way, so to speak, the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. our ally in World War II, who very, very quickly we came to see and they came to see us as, as a rival, as an enemy. And so how do you explain this, right? International law is not going to help you explain this. So this theory of, of, of international politics that's called realism, capital R, realism, kind of became the dominant theoretical approach, both in, in the academy and I think among policymakers. And realism is very much a balance of power approach, okay. right? That, that there are no rules among states, it's just power, that uh, war is a constant possibility, uh, you have to worry if uh, if your rivals or even your neighbors get more powerful than you are because what will happen then, even if they if you have a good relationship with them now, what's to say that tomorrow they might turn on you? And so, you know, what did we get? We got the Cold War. We got the nuclear arms race. We got the wars in Korea and Vietnam. Uh, we got uh, the expansion of American military power and Soviet military. Right? So is, not not just in Europe, but all over the world. So is the is the basic idea underlying it then that um, sort of in dealing with other countries, power is your currency, and so yeah. you're worried about who has much, who has the most power. You're in general always seeking more power or to maintain your own power relative to other players, and right. does that lead to? Um, is there ideas about why that does that lead to like a hegemony? I mean, I know it's we got a short time frame here we're looking from, but you know there was a sort of a bipolar world um, <clears throat> post World War II, and then I think as with the fall of the Soviet Union, um, there's been there was more U.S. hegemony for a while, and now maybe that shifting a little bit. I mean, did did, did realism give us tools for thinking about? Um, why we might end up in a like a having a couple of superpowers or then shifting to one superpower i mean is it predictive in that way or is it more look states are just seeking the power they're trying to seek they're doing the best they can and there's a lot of other factors muddling it realism is really bad at prediction okay right uh who would have uh, you know there are some variants of realist theory that say uh if you want a stable system, uh, you know, have a multipolar system because they each check and balance each other and you get more stability. There are other, there are other uh, realist approaches that say, no, that confuses things, it leads to misperception, it leads to, to, to uh, misunderstandings, and that can lead to more. A bipolar system is more stable. 
And then there are other people who are equally realist. You know, there is all about power that basically said, well, it's not bipolarity or multipolarity. It was nuclear weapons that prevented the Soviets and the Americans from fighting each other because they both knew that if they fought each other, their countries would be destroyed. Mm -hmm. Right. And that would be very bad for your power situation. Uh, so I think that <clears throat> realism has never been particularly good at prediction. Uh, it, I, I think it, it helps to point us to away from uh, the optimistic view that if we only get the rules right, everything will be fine. Got it. So is it more now, of a pushback against some of the rational legal authority argument? Was realism kind of the follow follow yeah. up to that? Yeah, real, yeah, realism kind of pushed back against notions like uh, that you that that treaties would guarantee the peace in the after world war one which was systematic in europe and, and to some extent the united states right the first major war in which the united states sent troops you know uh, abroad uh, into europe, certainly into europe we, we went abroad in the spanish-american war and we 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 fought uh, the mexicans obviously but those were relatively small and relatively short Mm -hmm. uh, here's where we, we sent a, a large expeditionary force to Europe and we sustained a lot of casualties but nothing compared to the casualties that the Europeans sustained right in World War I so World War I was a profoundly uh, dislocating event and and some of the uh, of the of the reactions that came after that were we've got to establish a system of perpetual peace and so uh, Frank Kellogg who was the US Secretary of State under President Harding uh, negotiated uh, this international treaty called the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Uh, uh, Monsieur Briand was the French foreign minister. Basically, everybody signed it and said, we will never go to war. We forswear war as an instrument of policy. Mm -hmm. Well, then Hitler took over, well, Mussolini took over in Italy, and Hitler took over in, in Germany, and pretty soon we're in another war. So I think realism was a reaction against the very kind of optimistic and law-based notions. But then, in the theory anyway, there's a reaction to realism. Because uh, people looked around and they said, well, look, most countries aren't fighting most countries most of the time. And in fact, you know, what we saw in the 60s and 70s and 80s, while the Cold War was going on, it was real, but we saw an enormous expansion of the world economy. Mm -hmm. And we hadn't called, we didn't call it globalization yet, but it was happening. Mm -hmm. And international relations, many international relations scholars say the realists can't explain this. And then a school came up called, the, 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 in the American context, called liberal, uh, kind of the liberal approach. And it kind of harks back to some of the previous ideas about rules and laws. And the liberal approach basically says, well, how do you get this huge economic expansion? And how do you get this huge expansion in international trade and international investment across borders? And, and, and movement of peoples and, you know, mm -hmm. airplanes flying all over the place, right? Uh, uh, you know, airplanes, uh, you know, taking off the United States and landing all over the world. Uh, it's because states can make rules to govern their interactions with each other. And they can come to kind of, of, of rely on those rules. And people can make huge monetary investments based on those rules. And so there was more of a... a, a, of a a focus, uh, kind of a return to focus on institutions and rules to try to explain this uh, vast increase in the world economy and the, in, in the role of international organizations like the United Nations 
And so these two approaches to international relations, and look, there are others, you know, sure. I don't want to bore everybody. <laughs> but this the liberal approach and the realist approach are kind of, and they've kind of been at loggerheads with each other uh, for quite some time. So I, I think that in terms of theory, you've got these two big approaches. And then you've got, you know, kind of the Marxists talk about uh, the, the dominance of economic factors in driving political decisions. And then you'll have people who say, look, uh, you're ignoring domestic politics, and actually domestic politics is a lot more important here. And I think that that's a, that's a really important thing to think about because I think a lot of policymakers, when they look at international relations, say, if I could just change the domestic politics in this other place, then we'll get you know, better, better relations. Uh, probably uh, the most famous of these domestic politics theories, and it, it had a real impact on, on U.S. foreign policy, is this notion of the democratic peace, hmm. that, that democracies don't fight other democracies. So what do you want to do? You want to spread democracy, because then you'll have a peaceful world. Soviet Union collapses. What do we want to do? We want to make Russia a democracy. So the Clinton administration spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to promote democracy in Russia. Uh, what happened? It failed, right? I wouldn't think anybody would call Russia a democracy today. Yeah. Uh, but, but this idea, right, of the democratic peace, which is focused very much on the, dom the domestic politics drives foreign policy, is, uh, is still a very powerful notion, I think, both uh, among students of international relations and among many policymakers. Look at, look at President uh, Bush, the President Bush 43, the second President Bush. What happened after 9-11? We said, well, we got to spread democracy in the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. right? That'll be the answer to this question. Yeah. All about, you know, if, if you're democratic, you don't have terrorism. Yeah. You don't support terrorism and you're at peace with your neighbors. So, you know, it, it's, um, that's, I think, still a very powerful idea, even though the policy on which it was based failed utterly. So uh, that led me to two questions along this line before we leave it. One is a little bit more theoretical, so maybe we won't spend too much time on that. And then one has to do with multi-state actors and sort of the rise of their uh, level of resources and, and what's... Does do IRI scholars have something to say about that? But the first piece was when you talked about realism kind of uh, being um, combated, or the counterpoint, or another way of thinking about it is liberalism, uh, and trying to seek to explain a way, seek to have a way to explain all the rise in international trade, all the rise in um, the economies. Um, yeah. and, and, and just the amount of resources that are being utilized by, by countries. So is across, across borders, across borders. Yeah, across. is there and, any and institutions, the role of institutions, the world bank, the IMF, the WTO, you know, all of these institutions that set rules that basically people follow. Yeah. So the piece I was holding on to was, it seems like at least the, countries engaging in trade to try to increase their amount of resources doesn't seem to be that different to me or than gathering power. So why was there, um, are those not seen that way in the, uh, when people are thinking about these, I, I know all this is kind of broad over generalizations, but is, it doesn't seem to me that he mentioned, go ahead. It's a, it's a really good point. So if you're a good realist, 
you, you say to your liberal friends, uh, the fact that the United States trades with Japan and South Korea and Europe and all, of course, there are, there are allies. We want our allies to be mm -hmm. strong, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, that, that's all about power. You know, trade makes you richer, makes both sides richer if it's done right. And, and uh, we want our allies to be rich. We want to be rich. We want our allies to be rich. Mm -hmm. But what that can't explain is trade with China. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Particularly when it benefits both so parties, yeah. You're, right. You're trading with China, even though uh, there's a lot of talk in America that China might be our next global rival. Mm -hmm. But we have what uh, China... Uh, I forget if China's our, our, our second largest trading partner or third largest trading partner. It's somewhere in there. We have a huge trade with China. And they have a huge trade with us. And, and so that that's harder for a realist to explain. And the second piece of it was um, about the multi-state actors. So I know you, uh, you people talk about the amount of uh, – when people talk about, I mean, multinational corporations, multi-state actors have a control a lot of resources, not nearly as much as nation states, any individual, but they play a large role in how resources are spent and how they uh, are spent across borders. So have they, how do they enter into the equation with nation states when it's, when we're talking about international relationships? So when you're talking about the great powers, uh, these non-state actors can be irritants. They can be like like terrorist groups can be irritants. You know, uh, it, it seems kind of cruel to say 9-11 was an irritant. But, you know, in the sweep of history, it was yeah. right. It, it, it was incredibly destructive and it killed, you know, a thousand Americans. I forget the exact number. But I think it was around a thousand mm -hmm. people. And that's horrible. Uh, but it. it Al-Qaeda is not going to be a threat to the existence of the United States, right? Uh, ExxonMobil is a huge corporation, uh, but it has to deal with the American government as a, uh, as a subordinate because the American government can tax ExxonMobil, can make ExxonMobil's life miserable. It doesn't, but it can. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about smaller states, smaller entities, you know, dealing with these big multinational corporations is, uh, you know, more of a, if you will, it's more of an equal footing. And and when the state collapses, and this is the problem in so much of my area, the Middle East, when the state collapses, then it's just non-state actors yeah. who are playing militias, uh, uh, terrorist groups, ethnic groups, sectarian groups, tribes black market yeah. networks and yeah because the non-state actors don't have the same tools to uh encourage stability or civic engagement right. or rule of law any of those things right and, and we get back to this idea of power mm -hmm. right these non-state actors have some amount of power but it's usually dwarfed certainly by great powers and even by kind of uh, stable middle level powers right uh, so uh, I'll use examples from my part of the world, right? Al-Qaeda can't overthrow the Egyptian government. It can't overthrow the Saudi government because these are, these are states that have real police forces, real armies, real intelligence services. Uh, but once the state collapses like it did in Iraq or Syria or Yemen, Al-Qaeda can establish itself in those places or ISIS more recently. And did... 
Well, okay. I think that's enough down that path. What I'll, I'd like to shift to um, what, what has been the U.S.'s approach just as a global actor post-World War II? I know we talked a little bit about this in the podcast, but in case people, and we had a long, had a long, uh, beautiful version of it, but um, how, in, in thinking about realism and the liberal approach and sort of um, Americans uh, for a while trying to set some ideals to aspire to and trying to enforce that in some weird ways, so what has the post-World War II road for the U.S. kind of looked like as a global actor? And then as we work our way through that, I want to start focusing in on the kind of the back end of this, uh, in particular, the relationship with the Middle East. And just to, for the viewers, um, if you are starting to have some questions, I want to be clicking over on the checking out the Facebook Live. I'm following uh, on Skype because there's a tad bit of, la of lag for us over to Facebook Live. But if you are having questions, we will be taking some questions throughout and towards the end. So feel free to send them on Facebook Live or in the Google Hangout if you're in the class. Um, but yeah, Craig, if you could tell us a little bit, we've talked about realism, we've talked about liberalism to kind of give people a framework for uh, thinking about how uh, nations interact on a global scale. How has the U.S. interacted? So I, I think in the immediate post-World War II era, it's the Cold War. And, and that's a very realist framework, right? It, it's a global con contest with the Soviet Union. It's very militarized. Uh, we're, uh, you know, we, we competed with the Soviets all over the world. And, and we fought wars. And we uh, built up huge nuclear arsenals. And we maintained huge armies in Europe and armies in East Asia and Korea and, and troops in Japan. And, you know, it, it was a global struggle and that that's kind of a realist thing. But within our alliances, we were more liberal. We were more rule-based and that encouraged trade and encouraged investment and encouraged uh, population uh, uh, travel and encouraged all sorts of things. And that became then the basis for globalization because then when the Cold War ends, United States is the dominant world power, and we think, well, we can make everybody like us and the Western Europeans and the Japanese. They just have to get rich like us. And so uh, we, we, we encouraged, you know, Chinese economic interactions with us. We, uh, we kind of uh, pushed an idea to elites in places like Latin America and Africa and East Asia saying, Look, the way to get rich is not the socialist way. It's not to follow a, a closed economy. It's not to follow a state-led economy. Really, it's to open up to trade and 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 to be a, an export-led growth economy. And and in many places that worked, like South Korea. In some places it didn't. But you know, uh, and there was then this ideological element too. We're talking about post Cold War, so it, it, you don't have to worry. The, the idea was you don't have to worry about power because the U.S. has all the power, right? Mm -hmm. It is hegemonic. There's yeah. that word that gets thrown around. But yeah. here, the, this is what he hegemony means, right? You are the, the single dominant power. No one can challenge you. Uh, so who challenged the U.S.? Non-state actors like uh, bin Laden, al-Qaeda. These were, these were mosquitoes mm -hmm. on an elephant, right? And we, 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 we push this liberal notion of, of, of economic, you know, the, the American economic model, and we push this idea of democracy. The Russians should be democratic. And then when we get hit on 9-11, well, the Middle Easterners should be democratic. 
and open up their economies, right? So this was very much, I think, uh, influenced by liberal theories, but from a position of enormous American strength, right? Mm -hmm. Enormous American strength. I think we're now probably entering a period where America doesn't believe it's as strong as it used to be. Objectively, we're not relatively as strong because China has grown so much in terms of economic power, and that economic power can be converted into political and military power. Uh, and so I think now we're getting back more into a world uh, of multipolarity, right, of great powers, the U.S., Russia, China, Japan, the Europeans, either individually as Germany and, and France and Britain or collectively as Europe, kind of, you know, kind of circling around each other, sometimes cooperating, sometimes competing. Uh, they don't have any big ideological conflicts like communism versus capitalism in the Cold War. But, and this is where the realists come back in, they look at each other as power competitors. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of where we're moving these days. And what, and I know we were just talking about the hazards of prediction, but what, what are what are people talking about that that means moving forward? Um, does it does it seem like if there's a more fractured realist approach um, that that will lead to more violence, but on smaller scales? I mean, do people have ideas from history, or I mean, do we have anything to guide us on what might be next as hegemony kind of shifts from U the U.S. Although I think it's when talking about these things, I often forget that from a conventional warfare and conventional economics, the U.S. is still the huge player in the room yeah. by leaps and bounds. Um, and we we're not talking. We don't, yeah, we don't. We don't. We don't have to make America great again. Yeah, exactly. It's already you know, exactly. Stuff, you know. We have the biggest army, uh, maybe not the biggest army in manpower, but we have the strongest army. We have. We spend the most on weapons. We're we're. We have unparalleled military power. No one can match us, even China. Yeah. And, and certainly not Russia. And, and one thing so, to, to flag there that I want to come back to is um, how important conventional warfare is now compared to, in terms of power, to information and uh, technological tools. So I want to come back to that. Sure. But what is, is, as we sort of fractionalize, for lack of better words, and go from a hegemonic uh, hegemonic, uh, I'm going to struggle with that word the whole time. Hegemonic world. Hegemonic. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, uh, I mean, the, the world in disarray seems kind of like a fitting title to use that again. I mean, it seems like it could be, yeah, it could yeah. lead to smaller, con more smaller conflicts at a minimum. So it's only a world in disarray and compared to this idealized notion that if, you know, one power will manage the whole world. But during this period of American hegemony, you know, you had the 9-11 attacks, you had the United States invade Iraq. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how ordered that was, right? Yeah. Uh, so so I, I think that when international relations scholars look at this, they've got very different views, right? More liberal types say, look, if we can maintain the institutions like the WTO that China really benefits from, that will restrain great power competition, right? The more realist people say, look, we know what happens when multipolar worlds arrive. There are wars, right? Uh, and 
just little wars, they're big wars. Mm -hmm. There are great power wars in multipolarity. But other people say, look, you're forgetting. Nuclear weapons kept the Cold War peaceful at the level of the great powers, not peaceful at the level of, you know, the Vietnams, the Afghanistans, mm -hmm. the Koreas, right? But peaceful at the level of great power war. You know, you didn't see my lower level because it's out of the picture, but the, the, the higher levels there. Uh, uh, and nuclear weapons are going to restrain great power conflict. The Chinese have them, the Russians have them, the Japanese could get them uh, relatively easily if they wanted to, the French, the British have them. And of course, we have more than anybody else. Uh, so there's all sorts of different projections based on your kind of your theoretical first principles of what's going to go on. What we know is going to happen is that there will not be perfect order, right? We know that there are going to be small wars, right, in which the great powers are involved. We know that there are going to be civil wars in which outside powers are going to be involved. And that's going right? on the, the, right now. Yeah, exactly, yep. exactly. And it went on during the period of American hegemony, quote-unquote hegemony, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I, it seems to me that, that the, the big question is, what do nuclear weapons and what do globalization mean for great power, the, the prospects of great power war? Because you can have rivalry without war. Yeah. You know, you, you hope you have, you know, if you're going to have rivalry, you hope it's without war. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we and the Chinese and we and the Russians are going to be rivals. But we're also, with the Chinese, we also have this enormous trade relationship. And we have some common interests. We don't want the North Koreans to blow us all up. So, I, I, this isn't a prediction, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, a lot depends on how you think the world works, these theoretical frames, as to how generally you think great power interactions are going to be. If you're, if you're a good realist, you're going to say that the chances of war between the, the China and the U.S. in East Asia are pretty high sometime over the next 50 years. But if you look at the nuclear weapons, you go, well, that's going to restrain. You know, There might be incidents and there might actually be crises in the South China Sea or on the Korean Peninsula, but nuclear weapons are going to make these people back away from the brink, just like the Soviets and the Americans backed away from the brink in Cuba, right, and Berlin, and the Middle East during the Cold War. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, and I think a lot of it, it seems like another uh, factor in this, I mean, we, I don't want to get too far into the details, but it's also the type of government, right? I mean, different types of governments have to, it seems, have to respond to different incentives. Um, and having, uh, being accountable to uh being accountable from a, in a democratic state with competing elections seems like it could lead to different outcomes than more authoritarian states where uh, maybe the access to information is different or the access to kind of bottom-up protests. This, I mean, this was one of the things that um, John talked about in our podcast was that in democracies, for example, you have to – sometimes there is some misleading of the public because you have to get buy-in. And on some level that's true in authoritarian states, but – the level of buy-in you need is probably less. So I would think another factor here is what types of governments are making these decisions, or is that is that sort of not a piece of this usually considered? So I don't buy it. Uh, the statistical evidence is that democracies fight as many wars as authoritarian states. Mm -hmm. That there's uh, that there's no real. Uh, uh, 
There's not a there's not a peaceful inclination for democracies. Democratic peace just means d democracies don't fight other democracies. But democracies fight plenty of wars against non-democracies, as American history indicates. Yeah. We we love war. We fight wars all the time, right? How, how, you know, we're, we've been in Afghanistan 16 years, right? And now we're talking about uh, North Korea. So it, it's not like it's not like uh, the United States is a, is, is a, a more peace-loving country than Russia or China. We're not. Come on. <laughs> uh, so I, I actually I, I actually don't think that that the form of government kind of in a in a big broad sense helps you to understand whether they're going to be aggressive, whether they're going to go to war, that kind of thing. Now, the way domestic politics affects your foreign policy in a democracy is going to be different because we have bigger, we have big debates, but we also have, uh, you know, uh, partisan conflicts where foreign policy issues are brought in to try to beat the other side. Uh, it's harder for us to keep secrets without a doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, I'm just... I'm just not convinced that the form of government you have is going to enormously affect your your foreign policy always in the same way. Yeah, uh, yeah I, 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 it's not something I have thought a lot about. It was interesting to, I mean, my gut would have been that because democratic governance in theory are more responsible to the people within them, that people in general would be aver more averse to war than uh, the leaders of, a, of places where there's not as much feedback from the people, but I, it, you know, statistically, if that's not true, it's not true. And so, is you there? Are, go ahead. You, you are good Kantian. This is exactly what Immanuel Kant said in in Perpetual Peace, hmm. where he talked about the democracies being responsive to their publics. I think what we've learned is it's pretty easy to gin people up for war. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Vietnam War was popular until it wasn't. Yeah. The Iraq war was popular until it wasn't. Uh, it, I, I, yeah, no, it, it, and, and it asked some questions that we, there's no need to get into tonight, but it does ask one of the, one of the frames I've been putting around this course and the public problem stuff is thinking about uh, these issues in terms of values. And so, and yeah. what, and where do we have the most overlap on some basic assumptions about values? Um, and so early on, I, I posited that I, in discussing these issues, I'm going to take the tact of minimizing suffering and in general, as like a as something that we should be ethically striving for, that moral philosophers broadly and religions broadly agree on. Um, it's it's an interesting. That's that's not that's not usually what international relations scholars start with. <laughs> that's not that's not the piece they start from. <laughs> yeah, not usually. What what um. One more question down this path, and then we'll shift. Which is, what do you, what does your gut say? I know this is outside of the realm of research of your research, but how might we lead to to peace? Then, I mean, I, I don't think that there's a silver bullet here, because you know it, it, there are multiple actors involved in sustaining peace, and and uh, thus you know you might want peace and you might act in a responsible and restrained way. But if the other guy has, you know, 
re a real desire to take back that piece of territory or restore his past glory or whatever you being peaceful is not going to help you this is of course the classic uh, uh critique of the european statesman dealing with hitler in the mm -hmm. 30s right yeah. this is the the, the the argument against quote unquote appeasement mm -hmm. okay so uh this is a uh, all I can say is that sometimes appeasement works and you can conciliate a potential rival and avoid war in a way that, that also safeguards your interests. And sometimes it doesn't. And, and if you want to preserve the peace, maybe you got to be tough and make the other guy stand down. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, he stands down before the shooting starts. But I don't think that there's a single path here because there are too many variables. There's, there's, there's not just you. There's the other guy, and then there are third and fourth and fifth parties who are involved in all of this. So it's, it's not a science. Mm -hmm. It's not, and that's why we, and that's why we, I think, justifiably celebrate, you know, the successful diplomats and the successful leaders who, who have that fingertip feel about how to deal with these things. Because if you just come in with a theoretical idée fixe. I'm not sure it's going to fit every situation. Yeah. Which, which in some ways is the is what we should have learned from the attempt to try to spread democracy everywhere. Maybe that the same uh, same tool to get to peace maybe needs to vary a little bit. Maybe you can't use the same tool in the same way all the time. Right, and, and look, I, I you know I'm not a big fan of spreading democracy as as a part of American policy, <clears throat> but I, I think it's in, incontrovertible that after World War II, our efforts to build democracy in Japan and West Germany uh, were extremely beneficial, right? And produced uh, countries that were uh, much better for their own citizens than the previous regimes, that were steady and faithful allies of the United States, and uh, open economies that, that became the motors of economic growth in Europe, for Germany, and in East Asia for Japan, and, and you know helped to raise the level of the world economy, and that includes the American economy. So in that context, after total war, World War I, and then the collapse of fascist regimes, the building of democracy really paid off for the United States. But, you know, the effort to, 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 to send an army into Iraq and, and, and give these people, you know, overthrow the government and give these people democracy turned out into, turned it to be a fiasco, a disaster. So, you know, you got, you got to look at, you got to look at it case by case. And it's tough because there's just not so, you know, if it was a, either one or two cases that, that, that you could learn from that had the same outcomes or hundreds of cases that we could do statistical analysis on, we might be able to have better, uh, better judgments about what's going on, but it's really hard when every each situation exactly. is so unique, and we just don't have that many recorded instances of the exact variables we would want to measure to know for sure what's going on. Exactly. Yeah, this is all. Exactly. Um, we, can, we can speculate based on cases. Like, look, Japan and Germany are relatively homogeneous places, right? They didn't have all. You know, they had different. They had divisions in their societies, but they didn't have a lot of ethnic. Or, or, or uh, sectarian divisions that were po politically uh, prominent that led to social divisions, right? They were relatively homogeneous places. 
and, and I think it's easier to build democracy in relatively homogeneous places, right? Uh, when you go into a place where there are profound differences and questions about just who are we, right? Uh, uh, should we be one country? In a place like Iraq, should we be one country? The Kurds didn't really want to be part of Iraq. Yeah. I think it, it's harder to deal, it's harder to build democracy. It's also harder to build democracy when, when basic, fundamental, first-order questions are still on the table, right? After World, War II, after World War II, those questions were off the table in Japan and Germany. Fascism hadn't worked. You know, they were under occupation. They were not going to have a fascist government. Mm -hmm. And they were not going to have a communist government, yeah. right? Because who was occupying? Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, you can build democracy on that basis because there seemed to be a general agreement that you know, we should be kind of a democratic state and we've got these people who have liberated us and are here with guns who want us to continue to be a democratic state. I, I, those for, when those first order questions are still on the table, it's really hard for democracy to work. I mean, look at our own history. Yeah. I'm reading the General Grant biography now, the, mm -hmm. the you know, the Ron Chernow Grant biography, because I really liked his book on Hamilton. Uh, Democracy didn't stop our civil war yeah, yeah. because there was a first order question involved and that was, and, you know, that was the, that was slavery yeah. and, and it couldn't be resolved democratically. So we had to fight. And I just finished the chapter about how Sherman went right through the place where you're living right yeah. now. Yeah. It was just swath of destruction. And I must say um, a lot of, uh, Georgians uh, still uh, hold that against Sherman. Still remember, <laughs> still remember and still uh, are unhappy yeah. with Sherman um, about right. that. Yeah, it's interesting. I we one of the list of topics for tonight was democracy, um, and I was thinking about it in a different lens. But I think it, it's really useful that you bring that this into the conversation. You know, I the more I learn about the rest of the world, I think your statement about the form of government. Uh, not necessarily being predictive of a way a state will behave is really is really important because you actually can see too if you look at cross-country measures of government accountability cross-country measures of uh, respect for basic human rights you know these things are loosely correlated with some of the democratic states but not exclusively so i mean there um there are places that are would not really be seen as democratic that also have lots of stability relative freedom and other uh, avenues and people have report high quality of life um, and so I think that's one piece and the other piece I think that you mentioned that it, that I was glad you brought back to the US because as you were saying it, it made me think about some of our own identity politics going on right now in the US and how you know identity politics have always been there but the way in which they're expressed on both sides, both Democrats and Republicans right now, is um, is really uh, hard to, sometimes you'll wonder if everyone is still operating under the same country and with the same basic ideas about, uh, you know, freedom and democracy and human rights. Um, it doesn't seem that we're always within this country um, on the same page about those first order questions anymore. And it, it's worrisome to see that in a place like the US that isn't as homogenous as say Germany or Japan, um, we've always been proud of our democracy standing through even um, with, a, with a great deal of diversity. One of the only places maybe in the world that that's been done well, 
um, it seems like there is some evidence that we're reverting to identity politics in some ways that um, are harmful for democracy and harmful for our own stability and harmful for how we interact with international players. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm way out of my, my academic area here and more into yours, but I think we have to remember that we, we built our democratic institutions when we were a lot more homogeneous. Mm -hmm. And we didn't allow we didn't allow African Americans to, to vote for the most part, and and of course African Americans were many of them most of them were slaves in, yeah. or women for that matter in the United States. Uh, uh, you know we didn't allow women to vote, but you know very few places did. That was the the the, the yeah, know, well, yeah the normal time yeah the development over time of the notion of, of of gender equality, but but we were a fairly homogeneous bunch, right? I mean we mm -hmm. we we got rid of the Native Americans. Uh, uh, exiled them further west, and then you know fought them. Uh, and and we were a bunch of Anglo-Saxon white guys mm -hmm. that built this democracy. And you know, good on them; they did a good job. Mm -hmm. And 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 they built institutions that allowed us to then become to to maintain our democratic system over time as we became more diverse. And and that's really the genius of America. And this is the problem that you're most many European countries have, right, is, is, is sustaining those, those, uh, those basic democratic institutions that maybe were built in a more homogeneous time when their populations are becoming more diverse. And, and, you know, the British seem to be better at it than the French maybe, but we, you know, we'll see, right? Uh, the, whole migrant, uh, the whole crisis of migration in Europe now is, is a real test for their democratic systems. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm like you. Jason, I don't particularly like the current incumbent in the White House, but uh, but I also don't want to exaggerate the threat to our democracy. I, I I worry about it, you know. And you know, if we have a government shutdown on Friday, it'll be just another bit of evidence that our political system is broken. But I I, I hold out hope that yep. in the end that there are certain basic things that all of us, if not all of us, agree on how we get there. All of us agree we want to get there. Yeah, I, I, um, I hope so. I, I have, I feel different about it based on uh, the time of year Days and yeah, and what I had for lunch. To be honest, <laughs> uh, let's pull back to your expertise and a little bit away from um, going down those uh, bigger questions, I guess, of democracy and peace and how we might get there. Um, Last time we spoke, we were just getting into the, I guess not just getting into the Trump administration. We had been in the Trump administration for six or seven months at that time. Yeah. Um, and we talked a little bit about um, how Trump might approach the Middle East uh, broadly as a region in terms of uh, diplomacy, in terms of engagement or not, and what that might look like. So maybe if you could recap for us a little bit about uh, what the Trump administration has done um, and where we are now. I know there has been a big shift, uh, not a big shift, but a shakeup of power in the country you're most familiar with, uh, Saudi Arabia, a few, yeah. well, how long has that been now? A month or two ago. Um, and I know you also had a trip there recently. So I'd like to hear some about that as an update in your details about that specific country, but let's talk a little bit more broadly about that first. Yeah, I think I think the Trump administration <clears throat> has shown a fair amount of continuity in the Middle East. Uh, it basically continued the Obama administration's counterterrorism policies against ISIS and, and uh, Al Qaeda. Uh, 
it, it uh, basically sustained the alliance relations that the U.S. has. You know, the, President Trump was very critical of allies in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, but he's embraced them once he was in office. Uh, like many presidents, he said, we want to get a Arab-Israeli peace, but uh, he also has this, uh, this real... Uh, attraction to doing things differently than his predecessors and uh, making the, the big splash. And so we declared that we were going to move our embassy to Jerusalem mm -hmm. from Tel Aviv mm -hmm. and Israel, and that alienated the people in the, uh, among the Palestinians, certainly in the Arab world and the larger Muslim world. I think that'll make the peace process more difficult. The place where I think uh, President Trump is the most different from President Obama is Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the... the the diplomatic achievements of the Obama administration was the, the deal uh, between Iran and the United States and, and, and the, five, the, the five permanent members of the Security Council, the U.S., Russia, China, Britain, France, plus Germany, plus the EU, to uh, limit Iran's nuclear program and reduce the chances that they could move to weaponize their nuclear uh, their nuclear fuel cycle. So uh, President Trump didn't like that deal, uh, and he is uh, moving away from it. And, and in the end, I think the deal will probably, uh, the U.S. side will, will withdraw from the deal. Uh, and we'll have to see what happens, but that raises the prospect of, of a military confrontation between the United States and Iran. Well, um... So, yeah, that's... So you know, happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, uh, yeah. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know how to follow those solemn words, so I just let them linger there for a minute. Yeah, we'll just we'll just we'll just let that sit for a while. Uh, let me say something about Saudi. I just, I'm just back from there. I, I was there last week. Uh, there are big changes in Saudi Arabia, but the Trump administration is uh, very strongly aligned with the Saudis and with the new leader, the new leadership in Saudi Arabia. He's he sees the, the new leadership very much as part of, uh, he, he says they're his guys. And they agree with him that there should be a more confrontational policy toward Iran. So, uh, yeah, things are, are, there's there's some amount of disquiet in Saudi Arabia because the, the new crown prince is consolidating power in his own hands. He's he's uh, uh, very much attacked some of the, of the old guard whether within his own family or within the, the, the big uh, economic players in Saudi Arabia, threw a bunch of them into the fanciest jail in the world, the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh, uh, really establishing his own power and authority there. But what's he going to do with it is the question. Mm -hmm. right? He says he wants a more open and competitive uh, economy and that, that going after these guys, these guys were corrupt. They were keeping the economy backwards. He wants a more open and competitive Atmosphere, we'll see. We'll see if that happens. Or whether this is just going to be one set of oligarchs coming, going out and another set coming in, right? Uh, like Putin did in, in Russia uh, to some extent. So I, I think that, that Saudi Arabia is a pretty stable place right now. Uh, there's a lot of changes going on, but it doesn't seem like there's a, a, a real possibility of serious uh, uh, regime threatening opposition either from below or from the elites that the new crown prince is cutting out 
so he has some time to try to consolidate himself. So what um, do you have uh, guesses about as the, as, the, as the administration moves forward? And there are several states that are less stable than Saudi Arabia. What's kind of on the, what's on the horizon in that, independent of the moves the Trump administration makes? I mean, what, where are a few of the other countries in the region with, in terms of stability and war uh, right now? So, I mean, we have, we have ongoing civil wars in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria, and in Libya. Uh, and two of those countries are major oil producers, Libya and Iraq. Uh, and, and so th that really, I think, defines the regional crisis, is these civil wars, uh, all sorts of outsiders get involved in them, the Saudis, the Iranians, the Turks, the Americans, the Russians. And, and that's where the, the struggle for power is being played out. Uh, and, and it's going to continue that way. Uh, and, and so I think that this uh, Trump uh, inclination for a, a, a confrontation with Iran is just added to these civil wars that are going around on around the region. Uh, so one one big question mark in all this is another place that saw not a civil war but you know some amount of domestic upheaval in recent weeks was Iran, yeah. with a lot of protests mm -hmm. on economic uh, issues. Uh, that turned into protests against the regime. Now, it doesn't seem like the regime is falling. I mean, this is a regime that has maintained itself in the face of even larger demonstrations in the past against it. Mm -hmm. But it makes you wonder how, you know, how much can Iran sustain a forward foreign policy, being involved in Syria as much as it is, being involved in Iraq, being involved to a lesser extent in Yemen. Uh, if it has you know discontent at this level domestically that'll be an interesting thing to watch as we go forward right does does a trump policy of confronting iran unify iran and make the government stronger or or does it you know exacerbate these tensions from within and who knows i mean that really is a guess who knows we'll see the one interesting thing is the president always says We'll see. <laughs> One interesting sort of byproduct, I think, of uh, or potentially a byproduct of Trump, uh, President Trump playing things out in the way that he has is I've noticed in the last couple of days, this is a completely other region of the of, of the world, but uh, the Korean Peninsula and um, the talks between North and South Korea and all sorts of willingness to, to interact in the Olympic Games. I'm sure that's symbolic and doesn't mean a ton, but uh, I've seen multiple things on at least engage uh, additional levels of engagement, and so maybe alienating from the U.S. pushed pushes North Korea towards their neighbor a little bit more. I I don't know, but it's been interesting to watch it play out. Yeah, I doubt I doubt it. I mean, uh, North Korea and South Korea aren't coming together just because they march in together at the Olympics. Uh, this is. The North Korean regime is is dedicated to reunification and dedicated to to its nuclear arsenal. That's it seems nuclear, absolutely clear. Yeah. In fact, the, the 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 event that we pushed this off for the event at the Bush School is a was a, a lecture and discussion with a, one of America's leading Korea scholars, mm. a guy named Victor Cha from Georgetown University, and it will be up on the Scowcroft Institute website soon. So, oh, nice. if folks want to listen to somebody who really knows about Korea. You know, go to the Scowcroft Institute website. <laughs> Once it gets up, 
post a we can post a, a, a link. Yeah, in any event, I, I, when I was in the Middle East talking to, to folks I know in Saudi Arabia, talking to government officials and, and other folks, I basically said, look, the Iran issue is real and it's big and President Trump is taking a new tack on this. But don't don't be fooled. Uh, Korea right now is the is the dominant issue. And I doubt very strongly that the United States is going to push for some kind of confrontation, direct confrontation with Iran, while it still has Korea on the agenda. And so I, I said, you know, if you think the U.S. is going to come in and start bombing the Iranians tomorrow, I think you're wrong. I think the longer term prospects for some kind of confrontation with Iran are, 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 are high, much higher than they were a year ago. Yeah. But uh, uh, Korea is number one with the, with the Trump administration right now. Interesting. All right. Well, I, I'm going to jump over, and I think we got a couple of questions. So, and trying to be respectful of time, let me see if uh, kind of what they are, and I'll just scroll through them. Lots of Bush School folks joined us tonight, so thanks for that. Let's see here. Woo. Um, just a comment here about the role of geography in international relations from a, uh, a friend of mine growing up who I know has a particular interest in geography, and I think that uh, it's not something we, we hit on, but I think clearly plays a role right. in conflict and in boundaries and success in different types of conflict. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> for example, the U.S.'s isolation in World War II by an ocean uh, helped protect resources to then deploy in, in Europe, for example. Um, no, that's, that's absolutely right. Look, the geographical positioning of the United States, protected by two oceans, with no uh, real military threat in its hemisphere, you know, at least from the 1840s, is... Uh, it's indispensable to the development of American power, right? It protected the United States from the great powers when we were a young country. And with changes in technology, uh, the oceans, while still protecting us, are not barriers to us projecting our power abroad. Uh, so, yeah, uh, absolutely. Here's That's the next why they one. geopolitics, right? It's the geography yeah. Yeah. part that goes to the politics. Second one here is... Um, Usually, Western powers and U.S. go with non-state actors, sometimes warlords trying to build democracy because states are considered autocratic. What do you think about this as a U.S. foreign policy? Interesting. Hmm. Uh, if you could find me a warlord who's trying to build a democracy, maybe we should support him. But I'm not. I'm not so sure. Probably the 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 best success in this in recent years has been the Kurdish region in Iraq. Mm -hmm which did develop uh, democratic systems, had free elections, but real power and real governance is, is uh, it's not completely democratic. And, and, and there's more of a crisis in, in the governance of the Kurdish regional government right now than there has been in the past. So I, I don't know if you can, you know, encourage democratic enclaves within authoritarian states. I think that would be a really tough thing to do. I think, and I think part of it here is saying that you, the U.S. often does work with non-state actors in trying to spread democracy, and is that useful or not was a piece of this, too, I think. Right. So this is part of the specific uh, uh, 
if you will, the unique characteristics of American uh, foreign policy. We always talk about democracy, even though, frankly, we never did much about it for most of our history. Mm-hmm. And we talked about democracy in the Cold War, and we helped set up democracies in Europe and Japan, in Western Europe and Japan, no question about it. But we also tried to frustrate democracies in other parts of the world if we thought those democracies would lead to left-wing governments that would that would cooperate with the Soviet Union, whether it was Arbenz in Guatemala or, or uh, 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 in, in, in Iran, uh, Mossadegh, who we, over, we helped to overthrow in 53. Uh, you know, we, we, we preached democracy, but we didn't encourage democracy in the third world. And, and, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, I think we did genuinely try to encourage democracy because we thought there, you know, there wasn't any other game in town. Democracy was going to help, was going to, all democracies were going to be close to the U.S. and there were going to be neoliberal economic models and all. And we encouraged democracy in Latin America and East Asia and and some of it stuck, some of it didn't, right? Uh, But in areas where democracies led to governments that we didn't like, say in the Palestinian Authority when Hamas won the election, we didn't hesitate to move against them. So I, 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 we are very schizophrenic when it comes to democracy. You know, Vladimir Putin says, you are trying to destabilize regimes with this democracy promotion. And you know what? He's right. Because Vladimir Putin can't run an authoritarian government in Russia if there are strong pro-democracy elements there. So it, you know, whether it's good or bad to encourage democracy in Ukraine and Russia and these other places, we should be clear-eyed that the leaders of these places are not going to like it because it is a regime change strategy vis-a-vis them. All right. Here's another one. It says, um, democracies appear to develop better and homogeneous countries, does that mean that the United States will continue to face fundamental challenges because we are not homogeneous? I think we ended up probably covering that a little earlier. Um, and uh, we, the, we keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, we're keeping our fingers crossed, and depending on the day, we feel differently about it. Um, but it does, um, it seems like it will continue to cause some challenges for some time, I think, at a minimum. It's just the extent to those and what common identities we can maintain. Um, let's see here. Um, so the larger question is, can you have a national identity that is stronger, larger than one's racial ethnic identity? I think that's one of the, one of the questions right on the head for a, for a diverse, uh, multicultural society like the U S are we going to be able to continue to do that? This is the American experiment, right? And, and, you know, the more time you spend in Britain, if you, if you visit Great Britain, which, of course, was a very homogeneous place. Uh, you know, the, the, the English and the Scots would say they're really different, but, you know, over time, they, they weren't that different. Although, I guess plenty of Scots would still like to get out. But, you know, Britain has become a multicultural society. This is the, the unintended consequence of empire. Yeah. And, and, you know, can that work? Uh, in, in a place that, you know, is not based on this ideal that America was, that, you know, uh, a country based on immigration, right? Uh, can it work in Britain? And and it seems to me like it is. I mean, and, and so that's not a, that's, that's a good sign. It means maybe France can, can, can handle it. And, and, and these other European countries that are facing the, these 
these immigration crises. Uh, so I, I'm not completely pessimistic. Right? I'm not completely pessimistic. Good. Um, you hold on to that optimism. There are going to be days when I call you, go. and I'm going to need that optimism. I'm going to I'm going to trust that um, that having seen a couple of ups and downs, you you're clear eyed thinking about this a little more than I am. That's what I'm going to hope for. <laughs> in, in other words, you're just saying I'm old. So I was trying to hard. dance around it and not say it that way. <laughs> Well, um, I'm going to do some closing remarks real quick, Greg, and then I'm going to end the live, and then I want to uh, just catch up for a minute if that's okay. Um, Very so, good. Uh, thanks again, Greg. Thanks for coming out. Thanks to um, all of you who came out tonight. Also, there was a lot of comments and some back and forths on the Facebook Live video, which I'm really happy to see. Thanks for your questions. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we will be meeting next week again virtually on Facebook Live with a couple of other uh, Bush School professors next week, hopefully. And I'll be in touch with the students in the Google Classroom. Um, you can follow us along on the Public Problems Podcast Facebook page, which is where this is being streamed from. And um, I think that's all for tonight. So thanks so much. Uh, thanks again, Greg. And um, hopefully we'll do it again sometime soon. The, uh, the audio will be available on the Public Problems Podcast uh, in the next few days as well. So thanks, everyone, for coming out. Have a nice evening.